God, it's so good to be in your presence. It's so refreshing to be here this morning just worshiping you. And we thank you that your presence is not something that we come into on Sunday morning, but it's something that you provide with us every day and every moment. And, and we need that refreshing. And so we just pray that you would uh, minister to our hearts here this morning. We pray that you would refresh us with the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, that Jesus, your son, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and has set us free from captivity to sin and evil and death. And we, we worship you for those things. And I pray that your presence would just sit heavy on this room, God, that we too would be moved by the power of your Holy Spirit today. And I pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word as we look at what Scripture says. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, it was Tuesday, May 8th, but this was not just any Tuesday. It was Tuesday, May 8th, 1945, and it had been three years and six months since America entered into this brutal war against the Nazis in Germany, and the months had just seemed to crawl by. And in only three and a half years, America had spent over $3 trillion by today's economic equivalents, and nearly 400,000 American troops had been killed around the globe fighting World War II. And for three and a half years, the shadow of death and despair had hung over not only America, but almost every corner of the globe. Until Tuesday, May 8th, 1945, the day that the newspapers published some seriously good news on the front page. The front page of every American paper, the good news was proclaimed in this big, bold font, VE Day. Germany had surrendered unconditionally to the Allied forces in Europe, and the war in Europe was over. No more American troops would shed blood fighting for European soil. And the good news was that the death toll would stop climbing in Europe, mothers would have their sons back, wives would have their husbands back, and America could slowly begin to put this tragic chapter of history behind it. And now as far as world history goes, few days compete with Tuesday, May 8th, 1945, when it comes to hearing some really good news. And the world was finally free from the terrible influence of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And I don't think since then there has been a greater story of good news that has covered the front page of newspapers in that big, bold font since that Tuesday. But I can certainly tell you that VE Day, the surrender of Germany and Europe, is not the greatest news that has ever echoed across the valleys and hills and plains of this planet, right? Amen. An even greater message had already been shared with humanity and shaped human history and will continue to do so for as long as the sun rises in the eastern sky. And if newspapers had been printed in the first century AD, they might have had written across their front pages in big, bold letters, the good news proclaimed in Israel, although probably nobody would have even understood what that meant the day that paper was printed, but it made VE Day pale in comparison. And let's look at our passage from Luke together. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there. 
We're in the end of Luke chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 42. And if you're a visitor with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. So you can come meet somebody at the bookstore after the service or come talk to me, and we would love to give you a gift of God's Word. Starting in Luke chapter 4, verse 42, it says, And when it was day, he, that's Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus drew the crowds of people like you would not believe. People just desperate for a sense of significance, desperate for hope, desperate for some sort of healing and life change in the circumstances they were in. They hunted Jesus down like some sort of honest politician who actually had the power and the commitment to really do something for them. And Jesus was a sought-after man, not just because he had nice platitudes, nice things to say, but because he actually changed people's lives. He had to go and hide himself in desolate places to get away from the crowds who just wanted to be near him. And not that these people really understood who Jesus was or what he had come to accomplish. These people were ignorant of the real significance of his life. It had not yet been revealed to them. They didn't see any newspaper headlines to cue them in to what Jesus was really doing and what they were really a part of. But they were so desperate for something, anything, just to be in the crowds around him, to absorb his healing and tenderness even from afar, was enough for them. They chased him down, hunted him down, pursued him even into the desolate desert places. And I think there's a question for us to ask ourselves as we look at the behavior of these people, a model potentially for us to emulate. Luke writes this, and the people sought him and came to him and they would have kept him from leaving them. These people are ignorant of who Jesus is and what he will ultimately accomplish, and yet they long to be near him. And you and I were not ignorant of who Jesus is or what he has accomplished, We're privileged to have understanding about Jesus because we have his written word. We know that he's the living son of God who through his death and resurrection set us free from the power of sin. And so can it be said of us that we seek Jesus and we come to him and we do everything in our power to keep him near? And if you're at church here this morning, I have to assume that you know who Jesus is And yet, how often are we guilty, even as Christians, of leaving Jesus alone in the desolate places and not pursuing him, not following him there? And when people look at your life, do they only call you a Christian? Christian? Or would they say of you that you seek Jesus, you won't leave him alone? They see in you that you chase him with all that you are. Would people say that you're merely a nice moral person like Christians are supposed to be? Or would people around you recognize that you have been with Jesus and accuse you of even hating to be away from his presence? And I don't know about you, but I want it to be said of me at my funeral that my favorite place to be was at the feet of Jesus. 
I don't want people to say at my funeral the, the warm, fuzzy platitudes that I was just a nice guy or that I accomplished a lot or that I was a pretty good person. I want people to sit around and just wonder at how much I loved to be with Jesus, how I wanted to be near him and how I chased him into desolate places. I'm not there yet, but maybe someday that will be said of me. Wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. And wherever Jesus is, that's where I want our church to be. But let's dive into that a little bit more because that's not even the main idea of these verses. The main idea of these few verses is not that Jesus was trying to run away from the crowds who wanted to be near him. The main idea is that Jesus was traveling around preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He was proclaiming and teaching people, telling them about the good news of the kingdom of God. Like the headlines on a newspaper, Jesus was bringing the people some brand new and incredibly important information that he wanted them to know. And so on the simplest level, what is the good news that Jesus came to bring? Well, John 3 is a good place for us to go to look there. I guess if you want, you can turn there. But that's a good place for us to go to understand the good news that Jesus is talking about. In John chapter 3, verse 36, the Bible says this, and I wish that I had put this up on a slide for you, so you'll just have to listen as I read this. It says in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. When Adam and Eve turned their backs on God in the Garden of Eden, they sinned against God and they subjected all of creation to the wrath of God. And God is displeased with sin and his wrath is aimed at sin to ultimately destroy it one day. And by sinning against God, each and every human has effectively told God to shove off, get lost. I got this. I don't need you. And when we sin, what we do is we make ourselves into a God, the God of our own lives. And since God cannot tolerate idols and false gods, his wrath is aimed at humanity because of our sin, because we have usurped his authority. But that's only one half of the equation. The other half is that God loves his creation. And he has no desire that people come under his wrathful judgment. Tainted and ruined though people may be, God has no desire that people suffer and die under his wrath, which is why he created a way out. A verse that's recently become one of my favorites, Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. It says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back from your evil ways. That's God's desire. Or 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So to make this possible, God has taken his wrath towards sin and aimed it at his own son, Jesus, instead of those who believe. And let me say that again so that you catch the full weight of this thought. To make our salvation possible, God has taken his wrath towards sin 
and aimed it at his own son, Jesus. Isaiah 53, 6 says this, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that's Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And so here's the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. You and I deserve the wrath of God for our sins against him, but God has done the incredible, I would say even the unthinkable. He killed his own son in your place so that the just penalty for your sins could be atoned for and you could have eternal life. And without the work of Jesus, the wrath of God would still remain on you and you would be condemned to eternal death. Or as Jesus himself says in John chapter 3 again, he says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So in its simplest form, the good news that Christians believe is that if you put your trust in Jesus, that he died for your sins, then all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and you are saved for all eternity. And if you trust that Jesus died on the cross to set you free from sin, then through his substitutionary atoning death, where he died in your place, Jesus took on your sin and gave you his righteousness. And for a scumbag piece of crud like me, the worst of sinners, if I can borrow from Paul, that's some seriously good news. The eternal death that I deserve has been placed on Jesus, and as a result, I have eternal life. And what does it take to have this eternal life? Maybe you're here this morning, this is the first time you've ever really heard this. You have this vague understanding of what it is that Christians believe and do, but you've never heard it laid out like this. Or maybe it's the first time that this has ever actually stirred something in you. Maybe you've heard this before, but this is the first time that it's ever making sense. What does it take to have this eternal life? All it takes to have the eternal life that God so freely offers is to believe that Jesus is God who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And that's what John chapter 3 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Believe in him, repent, turn from sin, receive the grace of God. It's really that easy. It almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Like, these kinds of things sort of make me suspicious. Like, that's it? There's got to be a catch. No, no catch. Now, at its simplest, the good news means freedom from the wrath of God against sin. But that's not all that it means. Just like the newspaper headlines proclaimed that Germany had surrendered on VE Day, surrender meant the war was over. But in a million different places for a million different people, that reality had an incredibly wide array of effect on their life. It was not exactly the same for each person in each moment. For some, it meant that they were free from the concentration camps. For others, it meant that they wouldn't die sacrificially for their country. For some, it meant that they could finally go home. And for others, it meant that their lives at home could finally return to normal. For some, it meant that they would be reunited with their loved ones. And for others, it meant the end of carrying the heavy burden of sending soldiers to their death. 
that one phrase, Germany surrenders, had an incredibly broad spectrum of how it affected people's lives. And such is the case with the good news of Jesus as well. To say that all that the good news means is that we're free from the wrath of God is to teach only a very small portion of what Jesus was proclaiming and preaching. Yes, to be free from God's infinite wrath towards evil is a wonderfully good thing. That's some good news. But upon further inspection of what the good news is, we find that it affects every area of a person's life. And oh, that I had the time to preach on every facet of the gospel. I suspect that all the universities of heaven for all eternity will not provide enough time for us to consider all of the beautiful nuances of the good news of Jesus Christ. But let's at least look at it from a few angles, if we can, this morning. For starters, go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 4 that Jim preached on a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says that he's come to proclaim liberty for the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, good news to the poor, liberty to the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. The good news means that God smiles on his children. They have his blessing, his favor. His wrath towards their sin has been replaced with gentle love and gracious kindness. He's kicked in the doors of injustice and healed those who are spiritually blind. You and me, how we once were. The good news means that we as Christians are not lost in idle philosophies. We're not cursed to live adrift in postmodern relativism, but rather through the good news of victory in Jesus, we can actually know what is true. That's an incredible thought in a culture that does not believe that there is truth. We're not doomed to be slaves to the same old sinful habits day after day after day. We don't have to bow down to the clutches of pornography, alcohol addiction, self-image issues, or be ruled by the past abuses that we've suffered under by maybe our spouse or our parents or whoever it was. Instead, the good news means that Jesus has won victory for us. And through our connection to him and the power that he offers to those who trust in him, we are more than conquerors. Or a reality that we find in John 3 again, but whoever does what is true comes into the light, the Bible tells us, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, in a rightly functioning church community, there is no sin that cannot be brought into the light. In a rightly functioning church community, there is no sin that cannot be brought into the light. And Satan loves to keep the works of evil shrouded in darkness and secrecy because then he just eats us alive. But the good news of Jesus means that we're forgiven of all of our sins and freely available to us is the very power of Christ himself to bring our deeds into the light so we can confidently confess our sins before God because we've already been forgiven. And we can even hopefully find in a right functioning church community people who we can confess our sins to who will let us know verbally you're forgiven. God doesn't hold that against you. He loves you. Repent and turn because power is available to change. And confession leads to a greater sense of forgiveness. And a greater sense of forgiveness yields an increasing desire to be shaped and formed into the likeness of Christ. A greater sense of freedom to be like Jesus. 
To go on, the good news means that for those who believe, we'll be raised from the dead in glory. We will be given new bodies, healed of all diseases and infirmities, and we will live with Christ eternally. He will be all of our desire and will be fully satisfied in him. Never again, never again will we feel disappointment, a sense of need that cannot be met, a desire that cannot be fulfilled, lack or fear at not having enough. The good news means that the longing of the human heart that we all feel deep down will be fully satisfied in Christ. But there's even more. Galatians 4 tells us that the good news means that we're children of God, we're sons and we're heirs. God has not made us his servants who have the privilege of sweeping the floors or cleaning the toilets in his eternal kingdom. No, 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 no. The good news is the truth that God through Christ has adopted us as his own children with all of the benefits that entails. And he pats the throne next to him and says, come and sit next to me. Come be close. Come be with me. This means that God himself takes care of us and provides. And it's not the government that sees to it that our needs are met. It's not our boss. It's not our spouse. It's not the cold cosmic universe by chance. It's God himself our loving and gracious Heavenly Father who sees that every single one of our needs are met in Christ. And what good news that in all of the situations where I cannot possibly provide for myself, God is taking care of me. Like the Apostle Paul says in Romans, what more shall I say? If God is for us, who can be against us? With the good news that Jesus proclaims, what area of my life has not been touched by God, redeemed by God, improved by God, taken over by God, healed by God, restored by God? Every fiber of who I am and every inch of my being, every nook and cranny of my life is touched by this good news in some way, shape, or form. And you have a new self. It's not the old self you once were. It's not the broken self that your parents gave you. It's not the failure that your teachers said you were. It's not the inadequacy your spouse has imposed upon you. It's the very image of Jesus Christ himself imputed to you. You want to know why you should read your Bible? Because I just barely scratched the surface of what the good news is. And every bit of the Bible speaks to the good news and shows us the new, new, different nuances of the ways in which this good news changes us, shapes us, draws us onward, assists us, helps us, encourages us. And so the good news is simple. Jesus died for your sins so that you could live if you put your faith and trust in him. But the gospel is by no means simplistic. It reaches out and it touches every corner of our being and every aspect of who we are, every second of our lives. And it's wildly complex and transformative if we'll take the time to investigate how it intersects with our lives from so many different angles. And this is the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. You are wildly loved by God. You are radically accepted by him. You are precious in his sight. And all of that is made possible through the work of Jesus, whose blood was shed at Calvary 
so that you could have eternal life. Okay, and that is the last thing that I want you to know about the good news this morning. That the good news is not a what. It's not a piece of information. The good news is a who. In verse 43 of Luke chapter 4, Jesus says that he must preach the good news to the kingdom or the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well, for he was sent for this purpose. And the purpose is, of course, the proclamation. But understand this. There is no good news for Jesus to proclaim without the cross and the empty tomb. And so it is Jesus himself that is the good news. And I bring this up because I think there are two potential pitfalls for Christians in understanding the good news. There's probably more, but I'm just going to stick to these two. The first is that the good news ends up being just a piece of information. And the more we know that information accurately, the better that we think we are. And it's, is it good to know accurate theology? Yes, absolutely. The Bible tells us to do that. Is it good to have right doctrine? Yes, absolutely. Scripture tells us defend right doctrine. But when the book of life is opened at the end of all days, the great day of judgment, Revelation talks about it, all that's going to be recorded there next to your name is whether you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. There will not be a grade next to your name for the heavenly theology exam for how well you did. Some of you are like, phew. Thank God for that. But truthfully, many an arrogant Christian will be very disappointed to find out that after all of their pursuit of greater knowledge, greater information, ignorant children with no knowledge of the finer points of Christian doctrine will be standing next to them praising Jesus with all of their heart. And understand here, please, I am not anti-intellectual. Quite the opposite. That may actually be my sin. Okay? I pride myself in what I believe to be good theology. I think our church has that as a pillar of what we believe. Right doctrine is extremely important, and we should seek it. But the proper response to greater information about Jesus is a deeply humble love for who he is, not a pride for what you know. And so be cautious that you don't get caught up in pursuing information about Jesus and fail to actually pursue the person of Jesus because the good news is a who, not a what. But the second pitfall is that you grasp the good news is a who. You just make the mistake of putting yourself in the seat of responsibility. And so you end up with the wrong who. I've encountered far too many Christians who, after being saved by Jesus, decide to spend the rest of their lives trying to work for their own salvation. It doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not saying that they, they, they try to work out their salvation. That's a great thing. The, the salvation, the gospel, the good news is a wonderful mystery that we should work to understand. The Bible tells us to do that. But rather, these are people who end up giving their lives to Jesus and they then turn and begin to stockpile good works for themselves so that they'll feel like God will be appeased by their efforts. Like the church in Galatians that Paul warns so harshly, they start with the good news that the Son of God has saved them from sin and set them free to be children of God. 
And none of that was because they deserved it or earned it or worked for it, but only because God is gracious and chose to give it to them. But then after receiving this wonderful gift of the grace of God, they then tried to earn the favor of God by going back to good works in Galatia. And so Paul says this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the implied answer is no. The good news is not that Jesus has made me good and so now I can make God happy by doing good things. That's not the gospel. The good news is that Jesus has fulfilled all of the requirements of God's perfect law and the blood of Christ has branded me forever righteous in the sight of God. And my works can add nothing to what Jesus has done for me. Jesus already cried out, it is finished, and so it is. And because that's true, because that's true, in response, I then labor with every fiber of my being, not out of fear that I might fail to achieve what has already been achieved for me. Jesus did it. But I labor with every fiber of my being because Jesus is worthy to have every drop of life and worship that I can muster. He's worthy to receive the glory of every breath that I draw and every thought that I have. And the message is that Jesus has done everything for us. The message of the good news, it's Jesus himself. He came for the express purpose of proclaiming and being the good news. So let me conclude with sort of two final thoughts that are going to bleed into one. First, to just apply the good news of Jesus, I want you to understand, belief causes response. Belief causes response. This last week, Leanne and I were up at a camp in California called Hume Lake. And at Hume Lake, there's this contraption they call the Screamer. It's a 30-foot stone wall, which on top of it has a 30-foot tower and a plank at the top, 60 feet in the air, and you strap yourself into a harness with three safety ropes attached, and you go to the end of the plank and you jump, okay? It's much like bungee jumping, but I would say scarier. But three separate rope systems that ensure you won't die, you're wearing a body harness that you can't possibly fall out of, and you're being secured by a trained professional at the bottom of the rope system, okay? Now, in spite of all of this, and thousands of people having jumped, tens of thousands of people having jumped off the screamer, tons of people get to the top of the plank, and they chicken out, and they refuse to jump. And some of you are like, yep, that would be me. The reason they chicken out is because somewhere deep down inside, they don't actually believe that the system of ropes and harnesses will keep them from falling to their death. Somewhere deep down, they don't believe that the ropes and the harness and the person at the bottom are going to keep them safe. Fear has led them to believe that the system will fail them, and so their belief causes them not to jump. And they take the harness off and they walk back down the hill. And yet others walk to the top of the plank and they jump 
because they believe that the rope system in place will hold them and keep them safe. And belief is a powerful, powerful thing. At the core, it's belief that causes us to do so many of the things that we do. And when it comes to the good news that Jesus proclaimed, he accomplished everything. It is left only to us to believe. And the more firmly we believe, the greater our ability to place our lives in the hands of God. Okay, now I'm going to walk out on a limb here this morning and say that there might actually be some very devout Christians in this room this morning who don't actually believe. You may be sitting here this morning wearing all the ropes and harnesses of Christianity, thinking that you follow Jesus, but you have never actually taken the jump to put your life in his hands. And you've been wearing all the ropes and harnesses of Christianity, but you're standing at the bottom of the screamer, holding the safety system in your own hands. And do you see how strange that is? You're wearing all of the dressings of the Christian religion, but Jesus is not actually your Savior because you don't believe the good news that if you jump, he will actually catch you. And if you and I were having a personal one-on-one conversation right now, you might actually get defensive and reply to me, but I'm a really good Christian. Look at all of the good things that I do for Jesus. Look at all of the good works that prove that I'm a Christian. And that's exactly my point. You don't believe in Jesus. You actually believe in you. And you're very good and you're very religious, which means that you trust in you, but you don't believe the good news. Rather than trusting in the system that Jesus has set up, the cross, the blood, his resurrection, the Holy Spirit alive inside of you, you're actually trusting in how good you are how moral you are, how involved in church you are. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 7 that still scares me to death as secure as I am in my salvation. Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And let me tell you, when it comes to the screamer, you cannot be at the top jumping and at the bottom holding the ropes. It doesn't work like that. Either you trust in Jesus and you jump, or you perish in sin with a whole lot of worthless good deeds. And I want to close with prayer. And If you feel like the Holy Spirit is telling you this morning that maybe you've been a Christian without ever actually believing the good news that Jesus saved you, then I want to actually invite you to pray this prayer with me. And if maybe you walked in this morning and you don't know what the good news is, you've never actually heard that before, I invite you to pray this prayer as well. But you can go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes, And if you want to put the ropes in the hands of Jesus this morning and jump, then you can just silently in your heart, silently in your heart, just pray this with me, after me. Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sin. 
Forgive me of my self-righteousness. I have pretended to trust you for far too long. I'm ready to surrender my life to you. I repent of my worthless good works. I repent of my sin. Fill me with the Holy Spirit and make me your child. Amen. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for this wonderful good news of your son Jesus who came to not only proclaim the good news, but to actually be the good news. And God, all of us, Christian, non-Christian, we have a tendency to put our faith in ourselves. And so I pray for the believers in this room, your children, God, that you would help us to trust you, to believe in you. Help our unbelief, we pray. Give us the strength and the courage to pursue you and love you and to forsake all else apart from the name of your son, Jesus. God, for those in this room who prayed this prayer this morning, would you fill them with the power of your Holy Spirit? Would they know the confidence of the assurance of their salvation in your son Jesus, who did everything for them? And God, for those who don't yet believe, I pray that you would pierce their hearts with the truth of your word, that they would come to know your son Jesus and be saved from sin and wrath. We love you. We thank you that you are such a gracious God that you would allow your son Jesus to go to the cross to atone for our sins, and we worship you for that truth. In Jesus' precious name, amen.